Hier komen we in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm Emma Norton and this podcast was recorded on Gadigal land. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So today I'm joined by my regular guest, Jordan Humphreys. Hi, Jordan. Hi. Uh, And Jordan and I have recorded two previous podcasts talking about his wonderful new book, Indigenous Liberation and Socialism. So please go check those out and grab a copy of his book. Um, Jordan is a socialist activist here in Sydney and he's been writing a lot about Indigenous rights over the last few years. So today we wanted to talk about The Voice. It's been just over a week since Australia voted a resounding no in the referendum to establish an Indigenous voice to Parliament. In today's episode, we want to talk about the significance of that vote, how and why the referendum failed, and how we can carry on the fight for Indigenous rights in the future. So Jordan, the results ended up being even worse than some of the polling predicted. 60.2% voted no and 38.8% voted yes. So every state and territory except the ACT ended up voting no. Queensland was particularly bad, 68.9% voted no there. So before we get to the why of this and how this this all happened, can you explain the significance of this result for Indigenous people and for the country's politics as a whole? Yeah, it's a big victory for the conservative right of Australian politics, absolutely, and just all the forces of outright racism as well as your garden variety racists out there who uh, managed to turn, let us remember, a proposal that was initially supported by 60 to 70% of people in the polls and that was seen as pretty uncontroversial, you know, just kind of mild, symbolic kind of proposal that anyone could get behind that people thought would get bipartisan support into this really you know, contentious issue in Australian politics and the right managed to really transform the image of the voice into uh, this kind of you know, Trojan horse for uh, you know, evil like woke agenda that was going to undermine democracy and re-racialize the nation and divide the country on the basis of race and all the other ridiculous right-wing talking points that they were pushing. Um, so the fact that you know, they weren't just able to campaign on that basis but able to actually win the vote very decisively around those kind of ideas is, I think, uh, you know, a big setback for kind of progressive left-wing politics and a victory for those right-wing forces and has all sorts of implications for for Indigenous people and the kind of broader uh, politics of the country. Yeah, so we might get into that a little bit later, but let's look a bit more closely at the results themselves. So an Accent Research Group report from the 16th of October, which polled no voters after they'd voted, Ask them what their main reason, their number one reason for voting no was. Most of the answers were basically liberal talking points. So 41% uh, said that the voice would be divisive, that that was their main reason for voting no. 14% said that there were more important issues (laughs) in the world um, and that's why they were voting no. Uh, And only less than 1% said the voice didn't go far enough. So would you say the no vote was motivated by racism? Yeah, absolutely. It was like it's impossible to think otherwise considering the whole political debate around it so there's the stats so you just went through there in the same polling you know when they ask people what's their three kind of major issues for voting no it's like 82 percent of people say because it will divide the country which is the talking point of peter dutton this whole thing about how the divide 
you know, people on the basis of race who insert race into the constitution, all this kind of nonsense. Um, there was another poll done just a week before the referendum um, that showed a third of people who were considering voting no said that they thought that Indigenous people had never been discriminated against at any point from 1788 till today. So like the most extreme kind of racist position can take, not even thinking, oh, it happened a long time ago, but not anymore, but actually it never happened. Um, so yeah, I think there's no way getting around that. Like as the referendum got closer, the no campaign was very openly racist and raised a whole series of issues which didn't even have much to do with the voice itself. So just enterprises, you know, press club conference, a speech about how colonization, you know, only had positive incomes for indigenous people. Warren Mundine's argument that the voice was a, a declaration of war on modern society. You know, Peter Dutton's comments about the madness of identity politics in the 21st century. It was very clear what the no campaign was arguing that indigenous people were not really oppressed. They shouldn't get any special privileges. And, you know, you, that's why you should re reject the voice and refuse the vote for it. Um, so, you know, anyone who saw that campaign and didn't understand that it was racist just didn't grasp what was going on, I don't think. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think of the narrative that started to take shape after the referendum that basically wealthy elites in their inner city, you know, latte sipping bubbles voted yes, while all the salt of the earth, working class and poor people in the suburbs voted no? Is that an accurate picture? It's like pretty one-sided. Like obviously when you have a vote where, you know, 60% of the population vote one way, that's going to include a huge cross-section of society, including, you know, lots of working class people who voted for no. Um, it is important though to try and, yeah, break up uh, what the vote uh, meant and who voted um, no by the largest, the largest portions. Absolutely. So, you know, unsurprisingly, it was the traditionally hardcore conservative seats, particularly rural seats, that voted, you know, the highest um, for no. So places like Parks in New South Wales, which has been a national seat since it was created. Um, and these seats, you know, are hardly expressions of like working class opinion or whatever, you know, dominated by like farmers and um, very kind of socially conservative um, layers of society um, who yeah, have opposed progressive issues around a whole series of questions um and many of whom are not you know really poor as as we would kind of understand it um so there's that side of things then on the other side you did see some um you know working class progressive areas voting quite strongly for yes actually so here in new south wales two of the most striking ones are probably um newcastle and wollongong um where there's you know some more recent tradition of kind of union organizing on a you know, kind of center left sort of basis, but I think that definitely did help. Um, and then even the inner city seats, you have to be kind of careful what you're talking about because a bunch of these seats do include, you know, large numbers of of young people who, again, are not super wealthy overwhelmingly, um, but struggling with all sorts of issues around rents and everything like that, and you know, the future prospects um, in society. So, yeah, the kind of division, which is not kind of unique to the voice, is something people talk about a lot with, you know. Donald Trump's election in the United States of Brexit and so forth is this pure division between like, you know, workers and ordinary Australians on one side and elites on the other um, is, yeah, very one-sided, I'd argue. Yeah, definitely. Some other interesting research that came out of um, the Australian National University 
showed that if you control for education, which is a, a high, you know, predictor of the yes vote, people with bachelor's degrees and over um, tended to vote uh, yes. But if you control for education, then the uh, relationship to income actually reverses and basically people who are richer are more likely to vote no, people who are poorer more likely to vote yes, which I think that's getting to, you know, you don't want to over-egg it. I agree that lots of working class people would have um, had to have voted uh, no for this referendum to fail. But I think the picture we're being fed uh, is a bit too conveniently Trumpian and, and not doesn't really accurately uh, portray what happened. I think um, a lot of working class people, especially trade unionists and so on, um, voted yes. Yeah, there's another kind of stat which draws that out, which is about like party affiliation and how that led to how you're going to vote in the referendum. So like more than 80% of liberal voters voted no, which makes sense considering you know, the whole party stance and everything. Um, but that's quite revealing because the liberal party base is not amongst like the poorer sections of Australian society. It's amongst not just very wealthy millionaires and whatnot, but the whole section of like of the Australian middle class. Um, and so, yeah, there were like teal seats and stuff that voted yes, but big sections of middle class voted no all across Australia, including a big part of the Liberal Party base. Whereas the Labour Party, which, you know, despite how conservative its leadership absolutely is, still retains the allegiance of, you know, most working class voters, like 60% of Labour voters voted for the voice and 40% voted against. So still the majority of Labour's voter base turned out to vote um, uh, for the voice. It just kind of shows that, like, in Australia, 80% of conservative voters and 40% of Labor voters, that equals 60% of the population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, some just, I mean, I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but some other demographics that um, had sort of stronger support for yes, interestingly, were migrant populations, particularly, um, you know, recent migrants, uh, trade union members, like I mentioned, and unsurprisingly, Aboriginal people. What do you make of that? Yeah, definitely. I think those stats are important. The migrant one is interesting because there were a lot of debates about that in the lead up and kind of contradictory polling or whatnot. Um, like the Liberals kind of did think for a while, maybe this is a big base they're going to tap into that had this whole kind of advertising campaign saying like, oh, why are Indigenous people getting a voice when you're not getting a voice and you've had it hard as well, migrants. Um, but they, they kind of moved away from that, um, partly because I think they realised they weren't having huge success and instead the main audience for their ideas was just like white people who are pretty racist in society kind of thing on their natural kind of basis, the liberal party. Um, yes. Union members voted uh, uh, more for the voice, you know, which is positive and does show there are some of those links there, you know, for um, better or worse between the campaign and the trade union movement. Um, and then indigenous people, this was another important point because if people remember like a big part of the, kind of argument of the no campaign was that um, ordinary Aboriginal people rejected the voice. That was kind of the argument of Jacinda Price, more mundane, it was the Canberra voice, whereas Aboriginal people in the remote communities in the Northern Territory and um, in poor communities in Queensland and so forth, they wanted nothing to do with this. When actually a stat showed the opposite, like remote areas in the Northern Territory, um, polling moves in the Torres Strait, um, Aboriginal communities like in Rec Bay and New South Wales voted for the voice by 60, 70, 80% so much higher than the average of the population you know which makes sense like particularly as the no campaign became more openly racist it was being pretty obvious what sides of the debate it was on um obviously though none of that kind of gets around the fact that still as i was saying earlier 60 percent of the population did vote no i think that does just show that there's a lot of you know pretty 
um, ingrained racism in Australian society. Um, and for a large minority of people, that is a pretty open racism. Like I said, one third of no voters saying they don't think Aboriginal people suffer from any discrimination haven't in the past. But then for a lot of other people, it's just a racism of ignorance and neglect. I think they don't really care about Aboriginal people very much. They don't understand their issues. They don't understand the history of discrimination that they've faced. And they did not understand at all that the No campaign was um, you know, campaigning to make lives worse for Indigenous people, not better. Um, and that you know, meant that they were open, I think, to some of the more kind of coded arguments that were put forward by Dutton. Well, let's move on to the campaigns themselves. So first, the No campaign. Um, you kind of have started to talk about this, but what was the content of you know, Peter Dutton and Jacinta Price's campaign and, and how were they able to win people to their side? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think they definitely appeal to, as I was saying, the, you know, all the sections of society that don't like Aboriginal people who oppose any kind of advance their rights who, um, and have done so for a long time. And I think a lot of progressive people kind of thought those people didn't really exist anymore because they've been, you know, more quiet over the last decade or so than in the past because we've had things like the Invasion Day rallies and the whole debate about whether Australia Day should be celebrated or not, and definitely a shift in kind of a greater appreciation for Indigenous culture and so forth. We have to remember a big section of the population, you know, were adults when the Howard government was in power, supported everything Howard did in terms of refusing to apologise the stolen generation and refusing land rights and the Northern Territory intervention, which actually had you know, majority support within Australia. So there's a lot of those racist attitudes out there that the Liberals are able to tap into, um, definitely. Um, and they're able to put forward what is the kind of classic right-wing conservative argument, not just about Indigenous issues, but in general, right? This idea that like, oh, maybe you know, Aboriginal people, women, gays, migrants were treated badly in the past. You know, that's kind of sad. But you know, now there's equal rights for everyone, the law and everything. So we've gotten rid of that. Um, and the problem is that these movements have gone too far. Now they're demanding like, you know, special rights, special privileges. They're not just demanding equal rights. And, you know, that's the source of, you know, Dutton quoting, you know, ridiculously Martin Luther King about like you judge someone on the basis of their character, not on the basis of their skin color and so forth. Um, so yeah, that, that was a big part of the argument of the no campaign. Absolutely. And then they were able to throw in just a bunch of other things. So they tried to appeal to people around cost of living stuff saying oh you know why is Albanese wasting all this time and money on this when he should be doing something about inflation um and they linked that to a traditional kind of right-wing talking point that too much money is being spent on indigenous people and where's the money really going and so forth this has been spent on these undeserving kind of people um that was yeah definitely another wing of the kind of argument yeah, definitely. Just denying the existence of Aboriginal oppression, I think, is a major part of racism towards Aboriginal people in Australia uh, today. Because then it just becomes, well, they are poor, though, and they are really criminalised, so that must just be their own fault. And, you know, it feeds into this um, racist argument about Aboriginal people not assimilating properly, not looking after their children, etc. Um, and we can, we can get into some of that a little bit later. But uh, I think it's worth here pausing and thinking about the Sovereign No campaign, um, this sort of supposedly left-wing no campaign run by Lydia Thorpe and backed by some people on the left. What do you think the results show about that campaign? Well, I think the results uh, really are a blow to some of the central arguments of the Sovereign No campaign, um, you know, on a number of different levels. So 
uh, first of all, the Sovereign No campaigners argued that a defeat for the voice would be positive for Indigenous people because it would mean a defeat for this kind of, you know, more moderate Labour Party style kind of project around the voice. Um, and that would open up the, the space for more kind of radical perspectives, um, you know, like treaties and so forth for Indigenous rights. Uh, in reality, I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit later, but the whole aftermath of the voice totally disproves that. Like, there's not been a big opening for more left-wing alternatives to the voice, definitely not, um, because it was a victory for the racists. And, you know, Lydia Forp and others try and claim that, oh, lots of left-wing people voted for no, but, like, the statistics are going through before show. They were not like, you know, <laughs> 1% of people said they voted um, no, no as their main reason being it wasn't radical enough. So 99% of people, that was not their main reason for voting no whatsoever. And you can see that in terms of the demographics and stuff, like I was saying, you know, it's right-wing rural racist seats voting heavily no. How's that a victory, um, you know, for some more radical perspective? Definitely not. Um, it was also a blow to the argument that the sovereign no campaign has raised, uh, which was similar to the right-wing argument actually that indigenous people again rejected the voice and they didn't support it and they also argued that um and that's been again totally disproven by the reality of where indigenous people voted in a whole bunch of these communities um and some of them have tried to kind of spin that um you know quite disgracefully actually i was uh, going through some of the progressive no facebook pages the other day and some of them were claiming like uh blackfella revolution has won that all the Indigenous people in Northern Territory voted yes, just did so because um, they don't understand English and they don't understand the electoral process and they were tricked by the AEC, which is something that Jacinda Price has also said. So that's terrible. Um, but you have to reckon with the reality that most Indigenous people did vote for the voice. Um, and finally, like a big part of the Sovereign No campaign was based around this idea that you know voting for the voice was as racist if not more racist than voting against it because it would force Indigenous people to be included in the racist Australian constitution and that would stop any campaigns of self-determination into the future and then different explanations for why exactly that was the case. Um, and like as I said before, I think it was wrong in the sense that this is a big victory for the right, so it hasn't opened up space for struggles for general, genuine self-determination. Definitely not. But also the alternatives they talked about um, didn't get around any of the problems of the voice. So they talk about the need for a treaty, for instance, but a treaty would also involve recognising the existence of the Australian state, the Australian constitution. It's a, a negotiation between two sovereign kind of forces. Um, and we've seen treaty processes like in Victoria take place, and they're not radically that different to the voice, to be honest. They also set up like a, a bureaucracy of people to represent Indigenous people, negotiate with the government, at the end of the day, they're still beholden to the Victorian state government. They're created for active legislation and can be dismantled by a future, you know, um, government if they see fit. So, yeah, I think on every kind of level, really, the Progressive No campaign failed to kind of understand what the referendum was about or chart some serious approach towards it. Our across the world. Yeah, so what about the Yes campaign? I wanted to kind of break this up into, um, into pieces because we've, we've criticised the Yes campaign on the pod before. Uh, one of our problems with it is the voice proposal itself. You know, in Albanese's mind, this was a purely symbolic kind of safe political gesture, like the apology to the Stolen Generations by Kevin Rudd, whose government actually continued to steal Aboriginal children from their families after that apology. Um, you know, Albo thought that he could do a similar thing. He could give Aboriginal people a voice 
and just continue to ignore it and continue with the, the usual um, policies of the, the Labor government. So how much of a role do you think that kind of token symbolism played in this whole campaign and the defeat of The Voice? Well, it's definitely one of the big weaknesses of The Voice proposal itself was that, you know, yeah, it wasn't some proposal to deal with the structural roots of Indigenous oppression, definitely not. And, you know, even described as a reform is, like, dubious, I guess. Like, is it some big step forward for Indigenous rights to have, you know, some advisory bodies set up without advisory bodies in existence, you know, throughout a lot of the 20th century and they haven't done that much for Indigenous people? Absolutely. I think in terms of the referendum itself, it, it did open up the the kind of Yes campaign and Labour government to criticisms that this was just a symbolic measure that wouldn't really change anything. There's a few points about that. Like partly that's obviously hypocrisy from the point of the right. Like they're saying this, but they're like solutions are to make Indigenous oppression even worse. Like not they don't actually care about ordinary Indigenous people whatsoever. Um, definitely not. Um, and the other part to it is like you know, it was like we went through the stats before, it wasn't defeated because it was too symbolic. Like people didn't didn't think it you know, people were opposed to it because they thought it was going to be more radical than it really was in a lot of cases. Um, so that's one of the dilemmas of it. Um, but yeah, it was a problem that they were fighting for this thing that didn't have very much substance to it. So it's one thing to, you know, kind of lose a fight around a serious reform. It's another thing to lose a fight around a not very serious non-reform. Yeah, so another criticism we've levelled at Labor and the Yes campaign before is that they didn't really go on the attack against the right wing, like the right wing campaign. They didn't, for example, call out the no campaign as being racist, even though it so clearly was. And instead, they really throughout this campaign, like pushed the politics of politeness. You know, can't we all just be polite and nice to each other? Um, What's wrong with that? Do you think that contributed to this defeat? I think that definitely contributed kind of politically to the nature of the defeat, I guess, because I think it's definitely not clear at all and probably not the case that if they had, you know, really stratantly called out Dutton and Jacinda Price and these other people for the races they were, you know, actually combated all their lies and whatnot, they still probably wouldn't have won the referendum because as the referendum kind of shows, like a lot of people don't necessarily understand the issues involved. There's a big minority of racists and so forth. But at the very least, it would have clarified the issues that are involved. I think that is important because it's one thing to, again, like lose this referendum. It's another thing to lose in a way where people aren't even really that clear on like on what basis a referendum campaign was actually um, won or lost on and the issues involved. And we'll talk a bit more about the aftermath of that, but I think you'd see it in that. Um, and so it means like people weren't galvanized. Like at the very least, it could have, you know, rallied kind of the, you know, 40%. 39% whatever it is a minority of left-wing people around the idea that like yeah Dutton is a racist Jacinda Price is a racist Warren Mundine is the Liberal Party what scumbags we're going to keep fighting against them that shows that we live in a very racist society we didn't win this day but we're going to keep fighting against all this kind of crap um but by not calling that out and by just saying like oh I've got to respect both sides and you know we've got to follow the rules of the debate and so forth I think they didn't galvanize their supporters. They didn't, you know, discredit the right. Definitely not. Who were just emboldened by that went more and more on the attack and were more and more extreme um, without any kind of pushback against it. 
Yeah, and I think they didn't make the the softer, confused racists feel defensive at all. You know, it, it, no one there was no narrative out there that like if you vote no in this referendum, you're a fucking racist. <laughs> like um, that could have you know again, I agree with you. Might not have actually won the referendum, but could have put th- those kinds of people more on the defensive and made it clear uh, what this campaign was about. So another really important issue that I think has been left out of the sort of smaller liberal narrative about the vote since is that Labor's a racist party, basically. Um, You know, they may have put forward this proposal for The Voice, but when they're not doing that, most of the time they're implementing racist policies, for example, in the Northern Territory, in um, the, you know, police forces in the states that they control. They still give mining companies carte blanche to steal Indigenous land, to blow up sacred sites, all of that kind of thing. So what do you think about Labor's role in actually pushing racist policies and ideas? Like how has that contributed to what's happened? Yeah, it's contributed a bunch, both in a very direct way. They have overseen, you know, the economic and political system that has enforced Indigenous oppression for decades now. Like, so you know, the Northern Territory intervention you mentioned before started by the Howard government, but continued under Labor, like just the broader issues of poverty and um, of police violence, of incarceration, and so forth. None of that has been altered um, to any significant degree whatsoever by Labor governments being in power on a state or federal level. And that has enforced um, the fact that Indigenous people are very marginalised in Australian society, which then enforces a lot of the racist attitudes and oppression they face. It makes it harder for them to push out of it. So it contributes in that kind of longer term sense for sure. Um, and then it also helps to explain like why they didn't do some of the things they're talking about. So like, it's not that surprising Labor didn't come out, you know, really slamming the racism of the no campaign when they've been complicit in a lot of the racism of the past. And so that would have opened up a whole can of worms, which would have been difficult for them to deal with. Um, and similarly, why they weren't, going to put forward some more you know serious structural um proposal than the voice they don't want to do that because they don't actually want to empower indigenous people to the extent that that proves a, a problem for running the racist capitalist system that they control like they don't want to set up a system where indigenous people somehow can disrupt the forces of law and order the police the prisons and so forth that are vital for the system to go on they don't want to give them so much power that they can disrupt mining bosses or farmers or tourism companies or whatever from using Aboriginal land to do whatever or to open up the space for Indigenous people to challenge um, politically a whole series of the lies and whatnot which have been told about Indigenous people throughout history which the Labour Party you know have never been clear on um, so yeah I think on all those different accounts the kind of racism that Labour is very uh, very complicit in um, shaped the politics of the referendum campaign. Yeah, definitely. And I think you could see it in the campaign itself, in the, the official yes campaign run by Labor and, and you know, um, some of the more kind of conservative centrist Aboriginal leaders, uh, people like Marsha Langton, is that a lot of the time when they were talking about why the voice was important, the main argument they had about what was wrong with the situation for Aboriginal people today was intergenerational trauma. This was like a phrase that was repeated over and over again in a lot of the um, the kind of defences of the, the Yes campaign. I think it's problematic, not because, I mean, there is intergenerational trauma, obviously, um, but it kind of just emphasising that makes it sound like the only real problem in, in Aboriginal people's lives is that they're still traumatised from things that happened to their ancestors or to their parents, rather than there are actual structures of racism today that oppress Aboriginal people, um, that lock them up, 
uh, that mean that they're poorer on average than basically every other um, group in society. Um, that means they're discriminated against. Like all of this stuff is happening now. They're being traumatized right now, uh, not by things that happened you know, a century ago or whatever. So I think Labor, even the way that Labor talked about this proposal fed into some of the racist ideas that, you know, Dutton was able to really take up with Gusto. Um, so, yeah, a big problem with that as well. So let's talk about Labor's response since the referendum was defeated. It seems like Indigenous recognition will now become for them and, and any, you know, any kind of positive advance on Indigenous rights will become like the mining tax or franking credits reform or any of that stuff where Labor just uh, loses a political argument about something and then refuses to touch it with a 10-foot barge pole, you know, for the rest of forever. Um, yeah, what do you think Labor will do going forwards from this referendum? Yeah, I think this is a really important point because a lot of left commentary I've read have really focused on the fact that some of the Yes campaigners and some of the Labour people, although not many of Labour really, have kind of you know blamed ordinary people for the defeat of the voice and said, oh, it shows what a racist country are and so forth. And then you know, the kind of left response to that is to say, oh, that's um, you know wiping out like the fact that you know, we're for a majoritarian mass struggle kind of politics to change the world and actually it's their fault and so forth. And that is like a fine point on that like uh, issue. But I think it kind of ignores that like most of the kind of arguments being put forward, particularly by Labour and by the yes people most associated with them is not actually about blaming ordinary people or blaming the country for racism. In fact, it's about trying to totally downplay the whole result of the referendum, everything that happened. So, like, it's appalling, but Labour's whole thing basically is like, oh, referendum, what referendum? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> as if they weren't, like, you know, the architects and campaigners for it for months. Um, and then it's to say things like, oh, the referendum isn't a vote about, like, you know, whether people supported it, support Indigenous people. It's not a vote about reconciliation or, you know, whether that's um, reached a dead end. Like, you know, some of even more conservative Indigenous people have kind of drawn that conclusion. Um, like Noel Pearson, for instance, and Marshall Langdon kind of as well. Um, instead, they say like, oh, the Liberals are totally committed to reconciliation. They support Indigenous people just like we do, bipartisan issue. Everyone supports it. There was this, this like, you know, secondary debate about the voice thing, whether that was the best way to do it. That's all it was about. Unfortunately, it didn't, you know, get up, but, you know, let's move on to other kind of issues now. So it's a real attempt to try and, like, depoliticize the whole thing, to try and downplay it, and to not face up to the reality of, the racism that was exposed during the referendum campaign. Um, and that I think is, yeah, really appalling and pretty kind of dangerous really, because it just means totally trying to whitewash kind of what happened. Um, and you know, left-wing people go along with that too much. I think they'll be totally hamstrung in terms of how to both interpret and understand the referendum and what it shows about Australian society and politics going forward. Um, well, let's talk about the victory lap that the right are doing right now. Um, so a few days ago, Jacinta Price tried to move a motion in Parliament to uh, begin a royal commission into child sex abuse in Aboriginal communities. Can you explain what's just so enraging about that? Yeah, it's appalling, right? And it... it it is fits into the Liberal Party narrative about the whole referendum that I was referring to earlier, where they say, oh, the voice won't do anything about, you know, the real challenges that Indigenous people face. But by that, they mean like, yeah, child abuse and alcoholism and crime and so forth. And it's this you know, attempt to blame Indigenous people for their own oppression and 
There's all sorts of apocrisies you can talk about it. This is an issue that came up a lot with the Northern Territory intervention, which had very similar kind of politics around it. Like, you know, they're not putting police on the street and arresting, you know, like white middle-class people in the Northern beaches who, you know, are involved in sex crimes, et cetera. You know, so it's this total hypocrisy. Um, and yeah, it's a big part of the right-wing politics of people like Jacinda Price um, and the Liberal Party more generally. Um, they've also, you know, that's one example. There's been other examples that are kind of offensive, I guess. So in Queensland and South Australia, the Liberals, um, you know, who originally supported treaty processes in both those states and now said they will not support them. And if they uh, are returned to government, that they'll rip, tear up any um, treaty process, which is signed in the meantime between the Labor government and whatever Indigenous body is set up to negotiate that. Um, so, yeah, they're very much emboldened. They're trying to get as much as they can out of this. Um, in terms of what the future that means, it is it is unclear, I guess. Like, there's many different roads that could go down, including ones probably haven't thought of. It definitely is possible that they'll continue to try and, um, uh, you know, beat the kind of Indigenous uh, issue as much as they can, just because they had a victory with the voice stuff. Jacinda Price wants to do it for her own kind of reasons, promote herself and keep herself kind of in the limelight of things. It's possible as well, more Indigenous issues might not be at the centre of a right-wing campaign, but that they just might move totally to the back burner of the political agenda because Labor doesn't really want to talk about it. The Liberals get some mileage out of it. After a while, they kind of move on to other issues and people just don't talk about Indigenous issues very much for you know some period of time. Which is also a big defeat, I have to say. Like, because you know that you know it's mildly better than them going on some racist campaign about indigenous people, but not much better, um, and definitely won't lead to us talking about what we need to change in order to campaign for indigenous rights. And then also, it could embolden the Liberal Party to campaign you know, around other issues as well, which is in the price has raised a whole bunch of anti-trans stuff over the last couple of weeks. Um, it's definitely cohered the Liberal Party in a more kind of right-wing Trumpian kind of way which follows conservative center-right parties all around the world. So far, that doesn't seem to have given them some big boosts like in the polls, um, but it has had an important impact upon their political kind of stance. Um, so that's saying, you know, we're going to have to challenge and confront and deal with in the years ahead. Yeah, and I think like the other thing that can come out of it is just letting a lot of the racists off the leash in, in sort of um, public politics. Like I saw. Jeffrey Blaney, who's just one of the worst people in Australia. Uh, for people who don't know, he's one of the kind of architects of the history wars back in the 90s and early 2000s who uh, talked about how any acknowledgement of the crimes against Indigenous people is the black armband view of history. Uh, and he's been out again this week and, and, you know, over the course of the campaign. But this week he was saying, uh, we have to admit now that Aboriginal uh, people are, quote, far, far better off uh, and should be grateful to British colonialism, basically. So I think we're going to see more of this kind of open racism um, in Australian politics, even if, like you said, this doesn't become a, a major campaign around policy that the, the Liberals want to push immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that shows, yeah, the whole racism behind the voice campaign, right? Because on one level, people like Blaney, but also Jacinda Price, Warren Monday and the others, like they didn't have to say necessarily a bunch of things they said like the voice on one level wasn't really about like whether we were whether australia was invaded or not whether that was good or bad for indigenous people necessarily and the liberal party campaign you know parts of it tried to 
um, not kind of emphasized as much, partly because I think they knew not everyone would just spontaneously agree with it. So they emphasize more stuff about, you know, we don't know, vote no. And this is you know, Albanese's voice, the camera voice and so forth as a way to kind of push forward their things. But as the campaign went on, I was mentioning this earlier, like they just just said all the classic kind of anti-Aboriginal kind of propaganda racist um, lines, which um, shows very clearly what they thought about it. They thought it was about the whole question of, you know, Aboriginal people, whether they're oppressed or not. And the thing about like the child abuse trope that has just been used so many times in Australian history to um, advance really racist policies, discriminatory policies against Aboriginal people. I mean, when they they used the child sex abuse um, kind of baseless, you know, uh, reports uh, to Howard did rather to start the Northern Territory intervention, he had to suspend the Racial Discrimination Act in order to get that to happen. These are like openly racist, discriminatory policies. So I'm not saying there'll be another Northern Territory intervention, but I do think that this uh, result and the the, the kind of um, confidence of the right really, and clearly just Enterprise kind of understands this, really puts them in a better position to make these kinds of arguments in the future, that any problems in Indigenous communities, it's basically their own fault. They don't need, know how to look after their own children and so on. And it's just so galling um, given, you know, actually over the last few years, we've seen inquiries and reports one after the other into state child sexual abuse in youth detention centres. I saw one actually that happened recently, a Tasmanian inquiry that showed really horrific levels of abuse in youth detention there, um, in churches, in actually in institutions that have historically stolen Aboriginal children away from their families um, and abused them there. And of course, the racist right never uh, talk about any of this kind of stuff and actually, you know, go on the, uh, help defend some of the Catholic priests and stuff who have been, um, who have been, you know, accused of child sexual abuse in the, in the past. So, uh, absolute atrocious hypocrisy, but something that, you know, can play well in the media. So to move on, um, Obviously, this is fairly depressing, everything we've gone over. Uh, it's not a good result. And we're saying people shouldn't um, try to dress it up and pretend it is a good result or uh, downplay how bad this is. And I think there'll be a lot of leftists out there despairing about um, what happened, people who voted yes, um, you know, despairing about the racism in this country. So I guess what would you say to them in this moment um, about you know, what we have to do as left-wing people who want to fight for Indigenous rights going forward. Yeah, I mean, I'd say you're right to be horrified by what happened and to see that it's this racist expression of Australian society and the racism of, of the No campaign and some of the limitations of the Yes campaign we talked about earlier. Um, but we can't just, like, throw our hands up in despair and say, oh, you know, it's all over or something. It's definitely not all over. Um, you know, also showed there's millions of people who do support Indigenous rights and that we need to continue to fight against racism into the future. And the reality is there's been all sorts of ebbs and flows, defeats and setbacks um, in the struggle both for Indigenous rights and more generally for, you know, better, um, more just, more equal Australian society. So that's still definitely what we need to continue to campaign and fight around. I think the reality is because of this result, yeah, hopefully I'm proven wrong, but I think it's unlikely in the immediate sense there's going to be some big Aboriginal rights campaign that emerges out of this. It's really going to fight and challenge the racism, um, you know, of both the Liberal Party and Labor. Um, yeah, here's hoping, but um, unlikely. I think considering the context and a lot of the confusion around it, I think even on the left. Um, but we also have to understand that uh, every 
every fight against the different manifestations of the horrors of the system are interconnected. You know, so we have seen tens of thousands of people coming out to the protests in solidarity with the people of Gaza or the Palestinians against Israel's horrific war against them. Um, you know, I'm sure there will continue to be all sorts of fights around uh, environment and climate change, around workers' rights, um, for migrants and refugees and so forth. And more, more broadly out of that, the need to construct a socialist movement, which is obviously a big topic of your podcast. Um, so I think we also have to see the struggle for Indigenous rights in that kind of broader context. Um, and the reality is, historically, when there has been a step forward in the struggle for Indigenous rights, often it's been because there's been a step forward for the radical and socialist left in particular more generally, that they have managed to strengthen their numbers, have more of an impact on society, draw in newer forces, which then can help all the different kind of fights around um, different kinds of oppression. So I think it just means redoubling our efforts to build that kind of um, you know, revolutionary socialist workers movement into the future. Absolutely. And if people are wanting a pickup after this somewhat depressing discussion, go and listen to the discussion that Jordan and I had in our Indigenous, Indigenous Liberation and Socialism Part 2 podcast episode, um, where we talked about that wonderful history of struggle throughout uh, Australian history. Um, yeah. And also, just a reminder that things in Palestine are absolutely horrific. There is a genocide going on there right now. So our next episode that we'll be releasing in about a week will um, cover that. We've got uh, a really exciting um, interview with Vashti Kenway, who wrote the book, The Story of Palestine. And Chloe and I talk about some of the horrific uh, things that are going on in Gaza and the West Bank right now and debunk a lot of the um, biased media coverage of that. So that'll be a really good and important podcast. Please uh, check that out. For now, thanks for joining me, Jordan. It's been great. No worries. And as always, we have a world to win. Um.